and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 12. And um, I will hold off on all of the my little spiel and my public relations campaign for Counterpunch until later in the program, because right now I have an excellent guest to speak with. I have the one, the only John Pilger on the program. I'm sure many of you are perfectly familiar with John's work. I mean, he is one of the most celebrated journalists and filmmakers of recent recent years. Um, I have, well, let me, let me put it this way. I have learned an incredible amount from his films and from his work. So it's really a pleasure and an honor to have John Pilger on Counterpunch Radio. Welcome, John. Thank you, Eric. It's really good to uh, be on the program. Well, I want to begin with a question. I mean, there's so many things happening in the world right now, but there's one thing that always comes up, and it's obviously directly relevant to what we do at Counterpunch, and that's the question of media and media narratives. And I just wanted to give you a moment to just talk a little bit about that since you've experienced it yourself. Um, in the in the West, we have this thing that we like to call the corporate media and the corporate media narratives and what they do and the pernicious effect that they have. So could I get you to speak a little bit about that and maybe your own experiences with that and the way in which they promote what I called last week on the program here, groupthink? Um, you know, I know you've written about this, you've experienced it. So what's your take on this pernicious impact of the corporate media and their narratives? Well, I think it goes back to our misunderstanding of the age we're living through. Um, You know, it's called an information age or knowledge age. In fact, it's primarily uh, a media age. I mean, there's always been media, but media now has has greater power. It's, It's through the through almost everything, television, uh, from television to our phones, the old media newspapers are really uh, parked at the end of the line. So media is, there's a constant babble of media. Um, And we, we, and that is most people, I think, uh, subscribe to this, even if they don't want to. Uh, as I say, it comes through their phone. It, 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 it's, it's there. It's in the, it's in the, the, the ether around them. So, um, so-called issues when they arise, especially political issues, social issues, become the preserve of this omnipresent media. Much more, very much more than they used to. So those who want to keep an independent mind have quite a struggle to keep that uh, with with so much of this bombardment uh, going on and the hijacking of very important matters and issues uh, is pretty standard these days um, and the misinformation is pretty standard these days now. Having said all that, that's a pretty negative picture. <laughs> At the same time, we've got the World Wide Web, and here comes a commercial uh, for Counterpunch, because we've got Counterpunch, and we've got, we've got other websites. So people who want to find out, and if they're prepared to navigate <clears throat> through the Internet, can find out, can join in uh, a discussion that undercuts this all-pervasive media. 
But, you know, a lot of people in their lives simply just don't have that. They have their phone, they have their TV, and that's, so the power of the media has never been greater. That's, that's my point. I I totally agree with that. And I think that it also gets back to this very important issue uh, having to do with, well, quite frankly, the the greatest issue of all, and that is capitalism, and that Mm. the corporate media is a product and it is connected to global capital, to this corporate and finance capital that is really all pervasive, as you said. And the difference with something like a counterpunch or other alternative sites is it really is not part of that same system. And that, in my mind, is really the distinction between the two. Uh, absolutely, I, I agree with that, and it, it, it's it's the also that we we need to understand even people who understand that much will still look to uh, a liberal media will look down upon and rightly the Fox News and uh, and uh, that that kind of media and then look to a liberal media um, from the New York Times to the Guardian to the BBC and so on as as providing at least a modicum of of perspective and truth um, and that that you know particularly around an institution like the BBC which is probably the most refined propaganda system in the world because it had such a high reputation um, understanding that the the propaganda and misinformation that comes from liberal sources is very very important I mean on the, the present issue of Greece that's why so many people have got it wrong in just believing without analyzing and examining uh, the situation, believing that, say, Syriza was a, a radical party, such a misused term that's become a terrible, bludgeoned cliche. Um, uh, it's one that is taken, actually, from the liberal media. Yeah, which, exactly. Which calls it far left and yeah. <laughs> hard left and all of that. It's nothing of the kind, uh, never was. And, and so then there's, then there's shock and a sense of betrayal and so on when it almost goes its inevitable way. Um, so it's, 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 really, it, it's really understanding, as you've said, that media is divided between those corporate monoliths, whether they're liberal, conservative, or in the middle, that um, defend a corporate capitalist system. That's exactly right. And, you know, I want to return to this point about Greece since um, that's such an important topic right now, um, you know, in the headlines in general. But just to finish up this point on the liberal uh, end of the corporate media spectrum, I think that one particular example that, uh, at least with me and my own my own writing and my own journalistic work that really sticks out is, for instance, the way in which the liberal media, such as The Guardian or The New York Times or others, the way that 
that they've portrayed the conflict in Ukraine. And I think that the, the, the line that they draw, I think, is really important because they were really, I think, some of the most pernicious elements of, you know, calling those of us who were taking an anti-fascist position as being, quote unquote, pro-Putinists or conspiracy yeah. theorists or something like yeah. this. And without the liberal media holding that line, if it were only the Fox News of the world or the Sky News or whatever, that narrative wouldn't be so deeply ingrained, but it is the Guardian and the Times and the rest of them that really are able to cement that. Well, I think that's right. And Ukraine is the latest example and probably the most dangerous example because it's an inversion of the truth. It's hardly even just a, a distortion. It is an inversion of the truth. Um, and uh, um, very few have pointed out that this this barely legitimate, illegitimate government in Kiev has had more loans than the Greeks have had hot dinners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and no one has bothered about those, more bailouts and the rest of it, because that's where, that's the West's latest colony. Um, the same, and, and the, the propaganda there has been, has been very crude, but then this is what happened to Chavez's Venezuela. Yes. The Guardian reporting of, of Venezuela was a disgrace. Um, it's what happened, I go back to uh, Sandinistas in, in, yes. in Nicaragua, the reporting of what was a rather modest revolution based, <laughs> as I remember, based on the cooperative movement, mm -hmm. not even claiming to be socialist, and yet it was, was given every extremist moniker um, by uh, uh, New York Times, especially, uh, and others in the so-called liberal media. Um, I, I think that's... It, it, there, there has to be more discussion, the kind of discussion that we're having. There has to be more discussion about this because even those people who think they understand that um, the, there, there really is a monolith in the media and it doesn't matter what they call itself liberal or conservative, they think they understand that. They're prepared to believe it's not to say there are not honorable exceptions within the media, but they're very, very few now, very few. Uh, and that it is an extension of the kind of power that will crush countries and people's hopes and dreams one after the other. The, the use of language, the misuse of language, the emptying of noble terms like uh, democracy and reform and all of those the the uh, uh, the, the distortion of our understanding these are daily fare from from so much of the liberal media always always ending up in a disappointment a shock you know you've got the Probably the worst example, the most striking example, is that of Obama. Exactly. I was just going to say. <laughs> Obama. Obama's most successful achievement was to destroy the so-called left, um, in, in, certainly 
in the outreaches of the Democratic Party, destroyed it, wound up the anti-war movement, uh, the mass anti-war movement, killed off the Black Caucuses, and if there was any life there, uh, did all of that. Um, and, and yet I think we've forgotten the hysteria, the political hysteria around Obama. I wrote a piece uh, in the run-up to the election in 2008 for Il Manifesto, no less, paper in Italy with a great left tradition. Um, and I compared Obama with Robert Kennedy, uh, carpetbagger, basically, and that um, the, 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 the politics of perpetual disappointment, um, they... Uh, they said, no, we, we, we can't run this piece. And I said, why? Well, it, it's critical of Obama. People are very mm-hmm. honest about it. Now, that, that's, that's, you know, that, that happened in other so-called left publications. I know of another one in Sweden that happened. Um, I know elsewhere of left publications where there's been any serious criticism of so-called identity politics, out it comes. Uh, and that, until we, until we have this discussion uh, that we understand really who is the enemy of most people, that class always is the issue, that it's impossible to understand how the world works unless you understand class, and it's impossible to understand how great power imposes its will across the world unless you understand the history and the contemporary history of imperialism. It it, it doesn't mean you have to get everything about it, but unless you have that framework, then you will be you will be seduced into thinking there are single issues always, but there is something about identity that matters much more than all of us, than all of humanity. It's, it's such a, a basic um, misunderstanding, a misunderstanding that has been willfully, I think, imposed on many of us, usually yeah. through the liberal media, but we have to counter it. Yeah, exactly. And the notion that, uh, well, just as you said, in, in regards to class, the idea that the ruling class is going to provide us with some sort of a messiah, someone who's actually going to challenge their own power, is not only a misconception, it's, a, it's an absolutely, uh, I would say, delusional idea that that could possibly happen. Class interests are class interests, and they won't work against themselves. Well, well, yeah, you know, and the class interests, the the sometimes they do, and this is not not to say that people who belong to an affluent class are not are not necessarily going to side with the majority. There are a number do, of course, but in terms of overall class interests, it just there is no evidence historically and in contemporary terms um, of of that ever happening and it we have 
we have a series of distractions these days. Um, the media, take one, the media has so distorted feminism by presenting images of fe what it calls feminism, glass ceiling feminism in the media, that completely discounts the majority of women and their struggle for social justice and domestic justice and all else. Um, that, that, the, the fact that so many people buy into that suggests that perhaps the failure is ours, that we're not, we're not discussing it enough, we're not debating it enough, we're not examining it enough. Um, this, again, this politics of disappointment, of despair, um, I'm often asked at meetings, well, then who, who, who would you put hope in? And I said, well, I can't think of anybody actually above yeah. me. Um, I can, I can think of millions of people <laughs> actually, uh, as on mass, uh, who I've over the years where I've reported from various parts of the world who've triumphed against the odds or struggled against the odds, I'd put enormous amount of hope in, in them. And it's what, it's, it's what you said. It's about, it, it, it's, it's about looking at the world um, from the ground up, not from the top down. It's that, it's that whole sense of agent of people, not of power. And, you know, in the great consumer revolution that has produced this two-thirds society, um, that message of looking at the world um, uh, from the top, not from the bottom, has been so potent, and we've got to turn it around. Definitely. Um, I know that we're we're limited on time, and you have a very busy schedule, so I want to finish up with one other question for you, and mm -hmm. um, this is one that I think is almost never discussed, and it's one that I think you probably have a particular uh, expertise on, just because you've been, I mean, you've been everywhere. You've traveled all over the world. You've reported from so many different places, um, and this is relevant to this conversation about Greece, just as you mentioned about Ukraine as well, and that is the issue of debt, and I want to get your take on this idea of debt as essentially a weapon of imperialism. It is, in many ways, in my view, a weapon in the hands of the imperial class, the, in the hands of the neo-colonial ideology, I think, that is quite pervasive now, not only in Latin America and in Africa, but really around the world. So if you look at a country like Greece, which is being crushed under the weight of this debt that's been imposed upon them, if you look at uh, the entire history of post-colonial Africa, Latin America, you see debt really is the pervasive issue. So what is your analysis of debt as a weapon of imperialism? Well, it is a major weapon and it, it's been, it, it's most debt is fake uh, because it's highly profitable. Uh, it's also most debt is the debt of others. It's the debt of, in Greece, the super wealthy uh, complied with the uh, you know, with all the nostrums of neoliberalism, and uh, and looted the place basically, uh, and ran up huge debts. Those debts were bought, and banks in Europe were have made profits on owning those debts, if you like. The debts are not to do with the majority of people. 
The whole notion of a deficit is absurd. It's a very modern one. It's ideological. It's so ideological that in Britain, the um, e extreme uh, chancellor, the treasurer in the Cameron Tory government, wants to make um, uh, a, a deficit illegal. E extraordinary. He wants to make um, the, the, the whole notion of a government having a deficit in order to um, satisfy public needs, fund public services, uh, in other words, fulfill its responsibilities as a government, uh, he wants to make that illegal. So the whole idea of deficit is being, it's almost as if we're being lobotomized to think that it really does, debt and deficit really have some kind of sacred divinity about them. Mostly they're fake. There is, uh, mostly there is no debt. If there is a debt, then it usually, almost always, certainly in 2007-8, belongs to those who, uh, who, who, who openly loot uh, resources and the world, who invent this uh, a, a system of debt, and of course I'm talking about the Wall Street banks and the banks in the city of London and the banks in the European Union, and and in order to justify this piracy, they've created this fake ideology around it, and it's called debt and deficit, the two hand in hand. Um, in the meantime, they they pay. So little corp, uh, corporation tax, um, most of their very powerful supporters, the multinational companies, pay no tax. Companies in many countries, companies like Amazon and the rest, pay mm -hmm. no tax. Um, so um, debt has become something that we must be got rid of along with tax. Um, and without... Without, without taxes, um, then, um, you know, ta tax is meant to lead to debt. Without taxes, we don't have civilized societies. It, you know, so much of what we're talking about has to do with modern propaganda and how through an all-pervasive powerful media, these notions, this jargon, becomes a kind of received wisdom, uh, like low taxes, like debt. We have to pay off the debt. Well, what debt? Whose debt? Exactly. Um, and, you know, in Britain, for example, the, 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 the amount of welfare that goes to huge corporations, handouts to corporations, dwarfs the actual debt. Um, I mean, we could play with these figures forever. The point is, it's utterly fake. And it's ideological. And it is about social engineering. It's about rolling back the, the modest gains that societies made uh, following the end of the Second World War. That's what's happened in, uh, in Greece in a very 
brutal way for all to see. I hope all see it. Uh, and it, 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 it's, it's happened throughout. It's happened in the United States, of course, but in even more so in many ways in Europe in this country. Yeah, and also the fact of the matter is that debt is one of, is the means by which you institutionalize servitude. So where uh, at one time in history, the European powers in the United States were able to subject their colonial, uh, p- their colonial possessions by force, instead they now do it through the mechanism of debt, through the mechanism of international finance. And the, the, this issue of austerity, which is now on the lips of so many people, as... Uh, Yanis Varoufakis explained to me when I interviewed him a couple of years ago that austerity is little more than the shifting of the burden of paying debts from the wealthy who created them to the poor who must pay for them. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the word, the word, I mean, it's always been in the dictionary. Uh, but um, you may remember when the, all the banks collapsed and we had this, this uh, crisis of uh, Capitalism in 2007, 2008. Very briefly, there the the opprobrium was directed um, not at uh, the majority who must pay for the debt, but at the banks. Very briefly. Uh, very interesting to look back. There was about three or four months of mm-hmm. all these these criminal enterprises collapsing uh it was so obvious that uh uh it, it was one of those rare almost media aberrations where the the causes of of a financial collapse the causes of the the root cause of of uh, of 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 this of the this severe recession uh, received some kind of public airing. That changed very quickly. And by the end of 2008, the word austerity had been invented. Suddenly, there was a public debt. Um, uh, and, and that debt had to be paid off by not the banks, not those who had... Uh, uh, had imploded, uh, but the public, uh, and various slogans were invented, certainly over here, you know, we're all in this together and all that nonsense. Um, it wasn't the public's debt. And the, the, the <laughs> there's, there's almost a mad sense to it, actually, but it, for something that's mad, it's certainly drifted into the mainstream and and been and been accepted, and that's what has to be challenged time and time again. And isn't it interesting, John, how every leader who has ever emerged and challenged the nature of debt and repudiated debts is somehow automatically, magically a dictator, a tyrant, or some other sort of totalitarian yeah. figure? Isn't that interesting? Yes, yes, of 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 course. Uh, I mean, they're at, yeah, they have the same. They they they're marginalised in the same way that countries that proclaim their independence and independence, financial independence, um, is 
is intolerable. And that's why, um, you know, under Yeltsin, Russia was perfectly all right because it was a, a vassal, both a financial and a, and a military vassal. Under Putin, it's independent. Therefore, uh, it's an enemy. China is the new enemy because China is separate. China has its own power. It doesn't depend. They have copied a lot of what America has done. There's no doubt about that. But um, China is, uh, is, 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 is a rival. China doesn't depend on the United States. In fact, the United States in many ways depends on China. Exactly. Um, so the, what is intolerable is, first of all, public enlightenment, and second, independence of societies. Any, any society that tries to develop itself independently, its own capacity outside of the, uh, outside of the reach of global capital is, uh, you know, a rogue state. It is a rogue nation. They are terrorists or something along mm. these lines. And that mm. is always the way that it is framed, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Africa or Latin America or anywhere. Well, you have one, one just last example of this. I remember... Um, because I did some work on it, and I found an appendix to the Rombier Accords when uh, Madeleine Albright and uh, Tony Blair and others um, were threatening war, a bombing war, an illegal bombing war against what was then Yugoslavia. Yes. And Milosevic was taken to the, ordered to, go to the French, this French city where there's going to be accords, as they call it, that uh, called it, that he would be called on to sign. He discovered there were secret appendices to these accords. And one of the, I think it was appendix, appendix B, <laughs> quite an appendix, um, it's, he, he, if he signed, he was agreeing to not only the military occupation, but the economic occupation that Yugoslavia would have to become a, a, you know, a free market, totally yes. free market economy. In other words, uh, he was being set up to fail, of course, because in, no leader, whoever he was, could possibly sign that. And what followed was the bombing of and the dismemberment of Yugoslavia. So the two went together. Yeah, and just as a note for people who are uh, hailing the, the the rise of the next progressive left messiah here in the United States, Bernie Sanders, who supported the illegal bombing of Yugoslavia, just as a note for anybody who still might have any illusions about who Bernie Sanders might be. Well, he's committed to support the uh, whoever is nominated uh, to represent the Democratic Party is almost certainly going to be Hillary Clinton. Exactly. Uh, who promised... Uh, I think the words we used was to 
annihilate Iran should they get uppity. Yeah, we came, we saw he died with regard to Libya. Yeah. Always, always yeah. nice. Anyway, John, I could keep you on forever, but we're already over the time. Um, I want to thank you so much, John Pilger, for coming on Counterpunch Radio. You are, I mean, really just the, one of the best people we have anywhere in the world. Uh, your, your, your films, um, everyone should go to johnpilger.com. The most recent film was Utopia, excellent film about Australian Aborigines and their experience there. Everyone should be following your work. John Pilger, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. My, my privilege.